All right, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, let's start off. Um, let's remember this as we get going. Um, this is not a book. So don't call it the book of Hebrews, okay? I've, I've gone over this many times, right? Um, we, we, don't, we don't have a lot of books in the Bible, all right? I'll let you call Kings, Samuel, Chronicles. We can call those books. Ezra, kind of. Nehemiah, kind of. We have the Gospels, but this is a letter. Make no mistake, this is a letter, right? It doesn't start off in a formal way like a letter, but it has the feel of a letter. It's an encouraging letter. Um, so what are the ingredients of a letter? Let's, let's think through this real quick before we get going so we don't lose sight at the beginning, so we don't lose our trajectory. What are the ingredients of a letter? What do we need to consider as you read a letter? Audience, okay? Now, you can pretty much gain the audience from the title of any letter in the Bible, right? So when it says Hebrews, who, who is this group? It's not the Corinthians, the people who live in Corinth. There is no place called Hebrew, right? All right, but obviously we can see this. These are the Hebrew people. These are Hebrew believers. Where do you think they would be located? If this letter is being sent somewhere, where is the postman taking this letter? Israel. Okay. Now, where else would you find Jewish people? Everywhere. Okay. Let's just be clear on this. It, it, very similar to James. James is kind of the, the mirror image or the flip image of Hebrews. James was a Jewish man writing to all the Jewish people. And evidently, Hebrews is one author. We're not even sure who this is. So when, when you're wondering who's the author, we don't know. Writing to the Jewish people. Okay, and again, so it's a very similar idea, but we don't know where this audience was located. Some people would say, well, they were in Jerusalem. Well, we just don't know that. We don't know. We don't know a lot of the specifics, but we do know they were a Jewish group of people, a Jewish group of believers. All right. Now, I mentioned the other one. So we always have the audience that we need to consider. We have the author we need to consider. And like I said, we don't know who wrote this book. There's a lot of people who make a lot of guesses. A lot of people think Paul wrote it. The problem is the vocabulary is nothing like Paul's letters. Nothing. And generally speaking, you can tell by the way someone speaks who's speaking, right? You ever been around those people? You, you hear something and you go, oh, I know exactly who that was. I know who, who said that. These two, they look just alike, all right? I, I look at them and I'm like, mm, yep, you're court, all right? I, it takes me a half second to figure it out. But if you tell me they told you this or they talked about this or they told you this story or they said this, I can pretty much tell you who you were talking to. Why? Because their vocabulary, the way they talk, their personality comes out in that. And what we see is Paul, this is not Paul's personality. This is not Paul's vocabulary. It was Paul's time, all right? And it was something Paul would have written, but he would not have written it in this way, with this language, with this vocabulary. just doesn't make sense. My personal opinion is it was Barnabas. Because when you go through Hebrews, what you find, it's always, we must do this. Let us do this. We got to do this. Got to do this. Got to do this. Be this. Work together. Let us do this. We get this idea of let us all the time. All right? Not like what you eat. All right? Let us. All right, let us do this, let us do this. And what, what would you call that? Encouragement, right? 
And who was the quote-unquote son of encouragement? Barnabas. Can I prove it? No, no. But I know Paul's companionship with Barnabas comes through in this, yeah. Do I see the heart of Barnabas? Remember, what did Barnabas want to do? What, what happened to the, when did Paul and Barnabas separate? What was the problem? Yeah, it was over John Mark. Barnabas said, hey, we got to take my cousin John Mark again. Paul says, no way, I'm not taking him. He got like a tummy ache and homesick last time. But Barnabas said, no, I really think we should take him. What, what kind of heart does that? An encourager. Someone who's always looking for the best. Someone who's always saying, we can do better, we can do better. So that's my opinion. Does it matter? No. No, it really doesn't. But there is an author who wrote to this group of believers. Right? There's author, there's audience, and there's what I call atmosphere, my three A's. The atmosphere. What was the atmosphere? It was probably written somewhere around 60 A.D., somewhere where all the other Gospels were written. All right? But from the context, what we see is an author continuing to plead with people, do not drift away. Do not fall away. And the argument that he makes over and over and over again is Jesus is better than our old religious ways. Jesus is a better covenant. He's a better mediator. He's a better high priest. He is a, a better, better, everything. Jesus is better. So don't go drifting over here. Don't go chasing down. Don't go running back. So evidently what we had was we had a Jewish community who was kind of being nostalgic about the good old days. We don't do that, do we? No. No, when we see our kids with their this stuck in their face all day long, go, well, when I grew up, it was this. I mean, just go on Facebook. All right? What do you see? All us old people in there going, it was so much better when we had the phone connected to the wall and you had to walk away from the, you couldn't go too far away from the string and all this. And I, my favorite one is the, the pile of bikes laying on the side, on the street or on the, in somebody's yard. And you go, that's how we knew where everybody was back in our day. Where, where was their bike? Where was their bike looking? Because y'all know, y'all grew up with this. All right? Mom didn't call us on the cell phone or text us to come home. All right? What did we get? How did, how do we know when it was time to come home? When the street light came on, we would come home because we've been outside. Outside, that's a neat, neat concept. Outside playing, all right, and running and doing and all this stuff, all right. And and mom just got on the back porch and screamed, <laughs> Johnny, Bubba, time to come home, all right. Gotta go. See you later. We'll be back out here as soon as school's over tomorrow. We'll play until it's dark, all right, and then we'll do this all over again. That's kind of the way, and we get nostalgic with that, don't we? And I think some of these people in this audience were getting nostalgic about the days of the sacrifices and having that high priest and having these rules and this whole Jesus thing is just too easy and too hard all at the same time. And I think they were getting nostalgic and the author kept saying, no, 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 no. Don't drift away. Don't drift away. So that's what it is. Again, it's a letter. I remember there was an, anybody watch Mad About You? What's it been like 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was. They had this episode on Mad About You. And, and the, basically the story of Mad About You, if you have never seen it, is there's this couple who lives in New York. They live in this you know, 20-something floor of some apartment building. And they just do their thing and they live their life. And it's just a funny part of their marriage is the whole thing. And they find this collection of love letters written during the war behind a wall or something in a cabinet. And they start reading these love letters from some guy that was off at war and he wrote these letters to somebody who collected them, put them in that apartment or whatever. 
And so they're sitting there and they're reading through all of these private love letters. And at no point in there, in that conversation, did they think that letter was written to them, right? This couple doesn't sit there and, and read the letters and go, ooh, what is this person trying to say to me, right? Why? Because it wasn't written to them. But what happens as they're reading these love letters? What are they doing? They're being inspired by a person who's off at war, writing to his sweetheart back home about how much he loves her, how much he misses her, how much he's going through, how much he's struggling. And they're reading this and they're just being, they're, they're just enthralled in these letters. So they're reading them one after another. Not because they think it was written to them, but because they see the passion written back and forth. That's what I want us to do with the letters of the Bible. Don't read it as if it was written to you. Read it as it was written to a people group that God in his divinity, in his sovereignty, the Holy Spirit inspired one man to write to one group and just sort of jump in on this and just appreciate the text that was written and then glean from that, not it was written to me, but it was written to this group and here's what I can glean from this. Here's how I can understand. Here's how I can understand my God who is speaking to these people. That's what I want us to do with this. So again, always remember the author, the audience, and the atmosphere. That's what you want to always ask yourself. What's going on? What's he saying to them? And what can I learn from what he's writing to this group? Okay, let's start off. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. All right, now can you get an audience out of that sentence? What clues do you find in there? Long ago, God spoke who? to whom? To the fathers. Which fathers? I mean, can this be a Gentile audience? Is this just a, just a generic? When he says the fathers, what do they believe? Yeah, he's, who's he talking about? These fathers. And he says the, the prophets. He doesn't say he spoke to fathers by prophets. He says spoke to the fathers by the prophets. They knew exactly who he was talking about. Who are these prophets we're talking about that? Give me some names. This is an easy question. Isaiah, absolutely. Jeremiah. Come on, keep going. It's a whole part of the Bible. Malachi. Malachi, the Italian prophet. Sorry, old joke. It just keeps coming back every time. All right, sure. Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Daniel, Ezekiel. Lamentations, right? Well, unfortunate name, guy named Lamentations. Wow, y'all just going to sit there on that one? That was nothing? All right, I got nothing on that? Come on. I gave a quiz to my first youth group. I said, name the, uh, name the disciples, the 12 disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Pastor's kid. Pastor's kid in high school. Give me that one. I was like, all right. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in different times and different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that's as far as we're going to get today. Because here's what I want to ask the question. What kind of God speaks? When it says long ago, God spoke to the fathers. And in these last days, he has spoken to us. What kind of God speaks? What kind of God speaks to his creation? What kind of God doesn't just sit back in this deist, everybody cool with the word deist? 
Deist basically means the God who exists over there. He created everything. He just set it in motion, went on your market, said go. You can pray to him all you want, but he ain't listening. He's not intervening in creation. He's not intervening in your life. He just created and stepped back and went, all right, go. That's sort of a deistic idea of God. We don't have a God that does that. God speaks. He speaks throughout the prophets. He spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And now he's speaking to us by his son. Now in Deuteronomy 18, Moses told him, he said, there's going to be a prophet that comes. God is going to send the prophet. At some point, the prophet is going to come and you have to listen to him. If you don't listen to him, you're in trouble. You will be held accountable for what you do with the message of the prophet. Now that was prophesied back, you know, 1450. 1450 BC. They're coming out of, the, you know, out of Egypt into coming into the promised land. And right before they go, hey, just to make sure you understand this, a prophet's coming. He's going to come from your own people. You will be held accountable to listen to him. So when John the Baptist comes along, what do they ask him? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And John the Baptist goes, I don't really know who I am. I, I, I think I'm this forerunner that prepares the way, but I know I'm not the prophet. I know I'm not the Messiah. I know I'm not the Christ. I think I'm the forerunner. I know I'm not the prophet. The prophet is still yet to come. So there's this idea of this God who speaks. So here's what my question is. What kind of God speaks? What kind of God speaks to his people? What kind of God reaches out to them, speaks through prophets, speaks through people, speaks through burning bushes? What kind of God speaks to his creatures, to his people? Go to, um, hold your place here. Really, Hebrews 1, you throw something in there because we're going to be back to this very quickly all for the semester. All right, go to Job with me real quick. Now, somebody give me, when, when was Job written? What's, what's the circumstance of Job? Do we know anything about that? Anyway, Job 33, I'm sorry. Job 33. Uh, can I, somebody give me the, the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> Those of you that are under 40 don't know what that means. All right, uh, the shortened version of Job. When, he, had all, he, lost he had it all, he lost everything. He and, and then he's got these three friends. Actually, a fourth friend comes along later. A fourth friend, he's a young buck. He, he just keeps there and keeps his mouth shut for a while. All right? He's got these three friends that really help him out, right? <laughs> these three friends go, you must be doing something wrong. You must be guilty of something. That's why God's doing all this to you. They're not real helpful. All right? And, and, and then you've got this young buck that comes along right then. His name is Elihu. And he kind of says, that, well, here's my two cents. I've kept quiet because I'm young. And then I, to me, here's this Elihu sort of gives what I think is good answers. And I think God goes, all right, he's about to get all the credit for giving all these good answers. Let me interrupt him and let me speak. And then God shows up and speaks to Job. And Job crawls underneath the table just to get away from the, the words of God saying, who do you think you are talking to me the way you've been talking to me? And so God speaks in this. So in Job 33, I'm in verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 12. It says, but I tell you, you are wrong in this matter. This is, this is the young fellow, Elihu, is talking. These three older guys are going to sit there and just have to shut up for a little bit. But he's talking to Job. He says, 
I tell you, you are wrong in this matter, Job, since God is greater than men. Why, why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? You see, Job's been asking all the time, I wish God would just show up and I could have a little debate with him. We could go to a courtroom and we can hash this out, but God keeps kind of hiding from me and he won't come and stand to me face to face. I wish I could take him and, and sue him so he'd have to appear here. So that's why it says, why do you take him to court for not answering anything a person asks? For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. For God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. Why not? If God spoke, don't you think you would notice it? What, what creates that I didn't notice that that was God? I didn't know God was speaking to me. It's the old funny sort of story of the guy who's stuck and stranded and in the middle of some water, over, overrun by water. And he's praying, God, you've got to save me. And a boat goes by. And then he keeps praying, God, you really, you've got to save me. And a raft goes by. And the story is, I tried to save you. You just didn't pay attention. Why don't we notice these things? Uh, verse 15, in a dream, in a vision in the night, when deep sleep falls on people, as they slumber on their beds. He uncovers their ears at that time and terrifies them with warnings in order to turn a person from his actions and suppress his pride. Why does God speak? That's the question. In order to turn a person from his actions and suppress his pride. God speaks time and again. When was Job written? You might know. Where does Job fit in the story of Israel? In the story of, of God, we don't know. We really, we really just have no idea. We believe it was probably the oldest book written. It's probably written before the, the Pentateuch, before Moses. Some people think it was somewhere in between Adam and Abraham. That's when it was written. That's when the story took place. We just don't, honestly, we really just don't know. But it says this, even back then, God speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. So again, I'm asking the question, what kind of God speaks? What kind of God reaches out to a man named Abraham, living all the way over in Babylon and says, you, you, the 75-year-old with no kids, whose wife is 65, who doesn't have any prospect of having kids, I think I'm going to go with you. So you come over here, and he talks to him. And he talks to him. What do we call him? God says he was God's friend. What kind of God speaks? One who has a relationship. One who is relational. We do not serve a God who just sits up in heaven and just does his thing and shoots lightning bolts at bad people and gives perks and good stuff to, uh, to good people. All right, he's not, he is a God of relationship. And every single one of you is tied for being the most precious person he has ever created. Maybe some of you just need to hear that this morning. Maybe you can write that down and you're done for the day. You are tied for being the most precious thing God has ever placed in his world. Every single one of you is tied for the most precious thing and he wants a relationship with you. He desires relationship. That's why he speaks. He, he is relational. 
later on we're going to get this thing. Uh, come over here to Second Chronicles. Come back just a, just a little bit. Second Chronicles 24. I want you to see this. We'll do a little sword drill today. Second Chronicles 24. This is about the time of a king named Joash. Joash is an interesting character. I'm going to be in 2419. 2 Chronicles 2419. Um, Joash's family, his parents, everybody was taken away from him. A queen named Athaliah all right, takes over in, in Judah. Takes over and just kills anybody and everybody she can find. The priest at the time was a man named Jehoiada. And Jehoiada uh, and one of the daughters of the king, they take this young boy named Joash, who is in the line of David, and they hide him away in the temple for seven years. Queen Athaliah has no idea he even exists. And Joash, when he's seven years old, this little kid is seven years old, they pull him out of the temple closet, bring him out, and they say, this is the king, this is the rightful heir to the, to the king. They blow the trumpets, everybody celebrates, long live the king, which is really bad news for the evil, wicked queen who's on the throne, right? Because guess what happens to Queen Athaliah by the end of the day? Dead. And it says that as long as Jehoiada was mentoring and walking with Joash, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. But Jehoiada died. Jehoiada died. Um, and so look over here, 24, and uh, where do I want to start? I'll start in uh, 15. Jehoiada died when he was old and full of days. He was 130 years old at his death, which at this time, scary long life, all right? This is not like Noah living 900 years, all right? This is when people died at about 70, 60, 70 years old, okay? Y'all with me on this, all right? Um, he lives to be 130. David lived to be about 70. Solomon, about 70. Saul, about 70. He lives to be 130 years old. That's like scary 115-year-old now, okay? He was buried in the city of David with kings because he had done what was good in Israel with respect to God and his temple. However, after Jehoiada died, the rulers of Judah came and paid homage to the king. The king listened to them, and they abandoned the temple of Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, and served the Asherah poles and the idols. So there was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. 19, watch this one. You've got to pay attention. Nevertheless, he sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord. The word Lord there, what is unique about it in your text? What? All capitalized, which means what? It's the name of God, Yahweh. So you can substitute Yahweh there. So look at what the purpose of the prophets were. He sent them prophets to bring them back to Yahweh. They admonished, the prophets admonished the people, but the people would not listen. Now this is about 800 B.C. God is already sending in prophets. What is the point? Work with me. What's the point of the prophets? When Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke to our fathers, the fathers, through the prophets, what was the message? What was the message? Bring them back to me. Bring them back to me. So it, the, the ambassadors were sent out from the throne of God. These prophets go out into this world, into this culture, into this world right here. And then what are they saying? Come back to God. Return back to God. Joash, you were doing so well. Remember the words of Jehoiada. 
Remember what he taught you. Remember what you grew up with. Quit chasing after Ashford. Come back to God. Reconcile to God. This is whole 2 Corinthians 5. Be reconciled to God. That's the message we've been given. So what do they say? Time and time again, come back to me. God sends people out to speak to people to say, come back to me. Why? Because God is a relational God. He doesn't sit back and go, oh, you don't want to be with me? Fine. You're going to go to hell for eternity. He never does that. He never at any point says, fine. Just be whoever you want to be. I don't not have anything to do with it. Here's my rules. You don't like my rules. You can follow your rules and you'll go to hell. And that's fine with me because I don't really care. No, that's not who you serve. You serve a God that's relational. You serve a God who longs for that relationship. I want us to do a little study here with Jeremiah. So come over here to Jeremiah. We're going to kind of walk through this. I want you to sort of glean some stuff out of this. Because again, I want to ask the question, what kind of God speaks? So go to Jeremiah 7. Let me give you context on Jeremiah as we, you go to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah was, um, began his ministry uh, during the reign of Josiah. All right, does anybody know anything about Josiah? Do we know anything about Josiah? He was very young when he became king. Again, very much like Joash. He was very young when he became king. His father was a horrible, evil, pagan man. All right, it, it just his grandfather was Manasseh, his dad was Amon. They both. I mean, at one point in Scripture, it says God turned away from Judah because of the sins of Manasseh, the grandfather of Josiah. Amon only served for two years, so you get this real short kingship between the grandfather, the father, and Josiah. And it says in there in Josiah's eighth year. All right, in his eighth year, he began to seek the Lord. And in his 12th year, he began to cleanse the temple. And in the 13th year, God sent Jeremiah to the nation of Judah to speak to them, to talk with them, to go over all these things with them. And so what he says, and sort of that's the, sort of the context of Jeremiah's ministry, is it's very much toward the end of the reign of Judah. It's about to go away, and this is the last chance. In, verse, in chapter 7, um, I'm starting in verse 12. No, nah, I don't want to start in 12. Yeah, I'll start in 12. I'm kind of catching in the middle. But, but return to my place that was at Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil my people, of my people Israel. Now because you have done all these things, and because I have spoken to you time and time again, but you wouldn't listen. And I've called to you, but you wouldn't answer. What I did to Shiloh, I will do to the house that is called by my name, the house in which you trust, the place that I gave you and your ancestors. I will drive you from my presence, just as I drove out all your brothers, all the descendants of Israel or Ephraim. What, does your text say something different there in, um, where are we in 13? Because I have spoken to you time and time again, but you would not listen. You may have a different? Say it. Again and again, all right? Yeah, the literal translation, go ahead and read it out loud. It's rising up early. Rising up early. In other words, I get up every morning and I plead with you. I've been getting up every morning and pleading with you again and again and again, but you would not listen and you would not answer. 
Parents, think about this. Have you ever said the words, how many times do I have to tell you to do this? That word ever come out? It may be teaching. It, that, those words ever come out? Guys, have I ever said that? How many times do I have to tell you? How many times? I tell you time and time and time again. What does that tell you about your God? Come over here to verse 25. You may see a familiar pattern here. Since the days your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I've sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and again. However, you would not listen to me or pay attention, but because you but became obstinate, they did even more evil than their ancestors. You see this again? Time and again. Come over here to chapter 11. Starting in verse 6, the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Obey the words of this covenant and carry them out. For I strongly warned your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt until today, warning them time and time again, obey my voice, yet they would not obey or pay attention. Each one followed the stubbornness of his evil heart, so I brought on them all the curses of this covenant because they had not done what I commanded them to do. When did he start sending the prophets? When did he start? When was the first time God said, I think I'm going to speak to them and tell them to do something? When does he say that? When I brought you out of Egypt. Now, Jeremiah's writing this about 600 B.C. They came out of Egypt in 1450. How long has God been telling them do this, do this, obey the covenant, obey the covenant. How long has he been doing this? 850 years. How many times do you have to tell your kids to clean their room? If you've been doing it for 850 years, what does that tell you about your God? You wouldn't have a room. You'd be like, <laughs> your room would have been burned to the ground and you would have been like, mocked and beaten. All right. But what does this tell you about your God? 850. Don't make me count to 850 years. I'll never forget. I mean, I, I learned this when I was doing a tour. I had some, some teacher. She was just awesome. She told her students, you got to, to the count of now to get over here. And I was like, I like that. I'm gonna use, I told her, I said, I'm stealing that. Wherever I go, if I ever teach, I'm using that with my kids. You get to the count of now. Because I asked her, I said, why do you, where'd you come up with that? She said, I'm not giving them three seconds to disobey me. I was like, I like that. So what, what, have I ever said it to you? You get to the count of now to clean your room. All right, now. But God says what? I've been telling you time and time again since I brought your fathers out of Egypt 850 years ago. I've been telling you time and time again. What does this tell you about your God? He speaks, but he's what? Fill in the blank. What does this tell you about your God? Patient. The, the, word, the word in the Greek is macrothumia. Macro means what? Big, all right? Macro versus what? Micro. Macro means big, large, long, all right? Thumo or thumia means suffering. 
He's what? Long suffering. I have been putting up with you for 850 years. Your disobedience for 850 I have been sending prophets to you time and time and time again. At what point do you stop sending prophets? At what point do you say, that is enough? I'm not going to send you one more prophet. Keep going. Go to Jeremiah 25. I want you to see this theme that's going to keep playing over. Because I want you to see what kind of God you serve. In Jeremiah 25, y'all with me? This is right before the first round of exiles. This is right before Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego head off. 605, right in there. This is the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The prophet Jeremiah spoke concerning all the people of Judah and all the residents of Jerusalem as follows. Jeremiah said this, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, till this very day, for twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you time and time again, but you have not obeyed. The Lord sent all his servants, the prophets, to you time and time again, but you have not obeyed or paid attention. The word literally means you have not inclined your ear. Imagine when God speaks and you just turn away. You don't incline your ear to him. Um, <clears throat> he, announced, he announced, turn each of you from your evil way of life and from your evil deeds. Live in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors long ago and forever. Do not follow other gods to serve them and worship them and do not provoke them, provoke me to anger by the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. But the next sentence says what? But you would not obey me. Come over here to 26. 26, 26.5. And by listening to the words of my servants, the prophets, I have been sending you time and time again, though you did not listen. I will make this temple like Shiloh. I will make this city an object of cursing. For all the nations of the earth. Come over here to 29. Anybody see a pattern here? 29.19. I will do this because they have not listened to my words that I sent them with my servants, the prophets, time and time again. And you too have not listened. 32. Verse 33. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them time and time again, they did not listen and receive discipline. They have placed their detestable things in the house that is called by my name and and have defiled it. They have built high places of Baal in the valley of Hinnom to make their sons and daughters pass through the fire of Molech, something I had not commanded them. I've never even entertained the thought that they do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. Where we are at 44. Jeremiah 44, 4. So I sent you, you all my servants, the prophets, time and time again, saying, don't do this detestable thing that I hate. 
but they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their evil or stop burning incense to other gods. So my fierce wrath is poured out and Judah uh, and burned in Judah's cities and Jerusalem streets. So they became the, the, the desolate ruin they are today. What do we see? How long has God been saying, how long has God been saying, stop, obey, just obey, just obey my covenant. How long did God say this time and time again? We know from this 850 years. But here's the thing. It didn't stop in 600. God didn't at 600 go, that's it, never mind, I'm out, you're done. No, God took 70 years and said, hey, you're going to go over there. But God still spoke. God sent a letter to them since I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you a future and a hope. But just recognize this. I didn't send you over to Babylon without warning you. For 850 years, I told you time and time and time again to do what? To, to do this horribly burdensome thing of obeying the covenant, of worshiping me, of living in this beautiful land that I have just handed to you, of living this blessed life of obedience, is that so burdensome? Is obedience to God so burdensome? What kind of God demands obedience to his own rules and his own design of you? When God says, don't jump off of buildings, you will splat when you hit the ground. Oh, what a mean God. Won't, won't let us jump off buildings. When God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he knows what he's talking about. It's not some bird saying, oh, God didn't want us to have any fun. No, God knows how he designed you. So when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he's going, that's the last thing you want to do. When he says, thou shalt not murder and Jesus comes along and says, even if you hate, you've committed murder in your heart. When he says, don't steal. When he says, don't covet. He knows what coveting does to you. So when he tells you, don't do it, is he being the mean God? Parents, do you feel like the mean person all the time that makes your kids obey the things that are the very best thing they could possibly do for them? What kind of God do you serve? What kind of God is speaking? One who is patient and long-suffering. One who wants to provide for you and to protect you and to put you into this amazing life in flow with the way he has designed and purposed you. But he's also a God who knows what's coming. What does he say time and time again? I told you, I told you, I sent them there to bring you back to me to suppress your pride because if you don't, if you don't turn back, what's going to happen? You will depart from this good land. The curses in this covenant will come upon you. There is coming a day where my justice will kick in. I will not withhold justice forever. But I warn you time and time. Why? Because he's amazing, loving, jealous God who's jealous for your presence. Who doesn't want you wonder? You know, Oprah went through this whole jealousy thing. She turned away from the whole God thing because she heard somebody say, well, God is jealous. And she thought, well, if God's jealous and he's not righteous and he's not good and he's not all these things because he shouldn't be jealous. That's a bad thing, right? God shouldn't be jealous. And I said, you know what? It's kind of like my dog. 
A lot of you have met Lincoln. All right? Lincoln, he, he's not the brightest bulb on, in the kennel. All right? But he's the coolest little dog ever. All right? But sometimes Lincoln does what? Lincoln will get out. And no, most of the time he's good. He stays in the yard. But sometimes he'll do what? He'll wander off. Hey, there's grass over there. I'll go sniff that for a while. And he keeps wandering. And eventually, where does he find himself? Out on the road on the other side, about to walk down Seven Hills Boulevard, all right? And I'm the, in that moment, I'm jealous for his presence in my yard. Why? Because I know that's where it's safe. I know that's where he'll be provided for and he'll be protected. And I'm jealous. I don't want him out there on Seven Hills Boulevard. Why? Because I'm no fun. I don't want him to go out there because I want to make sure he stays where he belongs and he does what I tell him to do. No. Why am I jealous for his presence in my yard? Why am I jealous for the presence of my kids being in safe environments? Because I want to ruin their fun? Because I envy them? No, it's not because I envy them. I want them to be provided and protected and safe. And that's exactly how God feels about you. When we say he is a jealous God who speaks and who pleads with you time and time again, it's for your benefit. Because jealousy, envy, covetousness, stealing, murder, adultery, these are all things that go against the grain, that go against God's design for you. So when God speaks to you time and time and time again, it's because he loves you. It is his faithful love. It's his hesed love, this love that you can't even imagine deserving. That's why he speaks. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't you get that our God has spoken to the fathers through the prophets all these years? Because he's a relational God. He's a God who speaks. And Amos, I want you to see this. Go to Amos. We'll do a little sword drill here, see if you can figure it, find it. All right? Last one to find it has to leave. I'm kidding. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. If you get to Obadiah, you're going too far. If you get to Jonah, turn around. In Amos 8, Amos is speaking somewhere around 750 B.C. He writes this. He says, y'all with me or close enough? Amos 8, it's page 1253. I don't know if that helps. Amos says this, Hear this, the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or, or, or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women, the young men also, will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. Why does God speak? Because there is coming a day when his justice will kick in that is patient and is long-suffering will be extinguished. 
There is coming a day when people will long for a word from God and will not find it. And a loving God says, I'm going to plead and beg with them until that day comes. So we serve a long-suffering God, a patient God who waited 850 years before he intervened and then kept right back at it. We serve a God who is loving, who wants to provide and wants to protect. And he says, obey me, obey me, just obey me. Because he is jealous for your provision. He's jealous for your protection. He, he gets so angry at the prophets during Jeremiah's time. He says, these people, these false prophets are treating my people's brokenness superficially. They're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Basically what he's saying is, You're taking them to doctors who look at our people, and even though their leg is broken, compound fracture, bones sticking out, they are messed up people. They look at this and go, well, I tell you what, let's get you a Band-Aid on that. You're fine. What's our world telling us? What are the preachers on TV telling us? Everybody's fine. Oh, you're fine. You're living in sin. You're living in this lifestyle. Oh, it's okay. It's just the the way God made you. It's who you are. That's called treating people's brokenness superficially. And if people won't call it out and call it what it is, they are not doing you any good. The prophet must speak and must speak truth. And this is why God just, it killed God to have this because he loves people enough to say, I need you not to be broken. I need to fix you. I need to repair you. I want to provide and protect for you. That's why he spoke. That's why he called out these false prophets and sent true prophets in there. He spoke, but he knows he is just. And he knows there is coming a day when there will be a famine of words. You imagine being separated from the heart and the voice of God. And God says, I don't want you there. I don't want you anywhere near there, so I'm going to speak. I'm going to send my prophets to you time and time and time and time again. I'm going to send people into your life time and time and time again so you know who I am because there is coming a day when there will be a famine of words. Unless you obey, unless you turn, unless you repent, there will be that day. And he's such a loving God, he can't imagine letting you get to that point. But go back to Hebrews. You see, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Why? Why why does he need to why don't we just keep sending prophets? Why don't we just keep sending prophets and telling us to obey? Because if we obey, we'll be right with God, right? If we'll turn from our wicked ways and we'll obey God, everything's fine, right? Why? Because the words of the prophets are never going to be enough to reconcile you with God. The prophets came and said, obey, obey, just obey. Turn from God, turn away from all these things and turn back to God. Obey, just obey him. Is that ever going to be enough? Can you ever be obedient enough to be reconciled to a holy God? No. So what does God do? He becomes flesh and dwells among us and dies in our place to do what? To bring us back to Yahweh. Not in obedience, not in this, well, I'll be a really good person and that way I'll get back. No, because you can't get back far enough. So God became flesh and dwelt among us to once and for all with one 
beautiful, romantic act of love. Bring us back to him. That's what the prophets did. To bring us back to Yahweh and to suppress our pride. Remember? That's what he says to Joash. That's why he sent prophets. But he sent the final prophet to bring us back to Yahweh. Eternally. Once and for all to bring us back to him. Now, here's the point of Hebrews. Will you listen to that one? Will you listen to that prophet? Or will it be like all the other prophets where God had to keep sending them and keep sending them and keep sending them time and time again? Will you listen to this one, the final one, the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? Will you listen and will you return to your God once and for all in an amazing celebration of worship for the God who became flesh and dwelt among us because he is so jealous for your presence. Will you listen to him? Let's pray.